The date is September 21st, 1776, and you find yourself sitting on a crude bench in a marquee tent on the property of a lush New York City mansion. Your only company, a uniformed British engineer named Captain Montresor, who has been assigned to guard you until the hour of your execution, which is scheduled to take place later this morning at 11 a.m. Outside, two armed guards quietly watch and listen. Your mind is spinning between panic and clarity, memories of the events of the day mixing with memories of your short life of 20 years. Your possessions, your uniform, your commission, even the buckles of your shoes were left behind at Hempstead after you crossed the Long Island Sound in a longboat in the dark of the night, avoiding the British patrol ships that protected the fleet in the New York Harbor. You had only recently joined the Continental Army and volunteered for a mission in British-occupied New York City that you thought might break up the boredom of camp life and strike a note for the common good as well. For days you posed as a teacher from Connecticut looking for work and all the while secretly gleaning information regarding numbers of British ships in the harbor, talking to locals, casually asking about troop movements, taking notes and making sketches. This was exciting work important work, and much more intriguing than building fortifications and suffering the tedious boredom of army life between engagements. There had been no training for this mission, just a request for volunteers, and you accepted it, despite the advice of your friend and former Yale classmate, now Captain William Hull. And you might have pulled it off until the fires, likely started by fellow rebels, broke out in the now British-occupied city creating panic in the streets as men tried to douse flames and save wooden buildings. And British soldiers scoured the streets, hunting for the troublemakers. You headed north toward American lines, but were stopped at a checkpoint and searched, a search which revealed the notes and sketches you had made of British defenses. You were then taken to General Robertson's office, one of Howe's brigade commanders, for interrogation. He recognized your name and asked if you knew of Samuel Hale, the deputy commissary at prisoners. And at that point, Samuel being your loyalist cousin, you knew with a sinking feeling that the game was over. Samuel was called for and soon arrived. You both spoke. He left angry with you and with himself for having to be the one who identified you. You were then taken to General Howe's headquarters. There you admitted all, not out of cowardice, but because they had found notes on you, you had nothing left to hide and you figured the truth, your education, and the innocence of your youth might offer the best outcome. You did your best to convince Howe that you were just an innocent pawn here, following orders to the best of your ability, a graduate of Yale with a future. Instead, Howe laughed in your face, basically called you an educated idiot, said you'd been caught out of uniform behind enemy lines, sentenced you without a trial, set the day and time of your hanging, and had you escorted out of the room like a common thief. All within five minutes, leaving no room for scholarly debate. Through the night, fear and dread and the shock of what had transpired in the past 24 hours sunk in and replaced all hope. This morning you requested a Bible, and the request was denied. You were given a pen and paper, with which you wrote letters to your mother and your eldest brother Enoch, He'll be proud to know that you died with honor, loyal to your country, and faced it like a man, as will your father, Richard. Mother will be distraught. You hope this letter will help to ease the pain. You think of Elizabeth in New London. That image vanishes instantly as the thought of knowing that in one hour, a hemp noose will be placed around your neck, and you'll be hanging from a tree, strangling from your own weight, floods your consciousness. You pull it together. What can you say or do or write in one hour? There was that letter from your Yale classmate James Hillhouse, which you received as a newly hired teacher in New London, while passions were running high against British rule in the colonies. How did that read? Now is the time for heroes. Now is the time for great men to immortalize their names in the deliverance of their country and grace the annals of America with their glorious deeds.
of all the things you debated on with your brother at Yale, of all the things you hold most dear to your heart, one word stood out. Liberty. That was what made you join the Connecticut militia. But you were kept back from the march on Boston, placed in reserves, and kept at your job as master of the Union School in New London, teaching. Oh, how you wish you could be there now. You think of your friend and former classmate, Ben Talmadge, who had resigned his teaching position to join the Continental Army, who had urged you to consider joining the cause for freedom, for God, for country, and you did so, signing up the next day. Your guard, Captain Montresor, interrupts your thoughts. Any last requests, Mr. Hale? Yes, I wish to speak on my behalf before I'm executed. I think I can arrange that. It is now 10 a.m. Sunday morning, September 26, 1776. You've been marched one mile up the post road away from the Beekman Estate to the Park of Artillery at what is known today as 66th Street and 3rd Avenue, Manhattan. Back then, the Dub Tavern stood on the opposite corner of the field. Your guards are leading you toward a large tree. Your march under guard has been accompanied by a small crowd of curious civilians, some no doubt rounded up to stand witness to see just what happens to spies. You are standing beneath a stout branch over which a rope has been looped. The other end has been fashioned into a noose and has been dropped over your head. You gather all your nerve, looking out at the small crowd of onlookers, including some children, and the British soldiers, dragoon helmets towering above their heads, standing formally in line. You can see General Howe on horseback, accompanied by two senior officers about a hundred feet away, talking and laughing in response to a comment one of them had made. In a loud, clear voice, you begin. My name is Nathan Hale. I am the son of Richard and Elizabeth Strong Hale, Puritans who come to this country with the hope of finding religious freedom and liberty from tyranny. I attended Yale, graduated, and became a teacher, which is my chosen profession. I am a firm believer in the belief that all men are created equal by God and should be allowed to pursue their dreams of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, free from the domination of others who wish to deny those basic rights. I have been brought here and sentenced to die without a trial by men who pretend to be your salvation, yet want only to rule you, believing themselves to be in every way superior to you. All men are born free, and any government or king that tries to impose their will upon free and sovereign people serves only its king and not the people as a whole. We as a people need to establish our own laws and handle our own affairs, owing allegiance only to ourselves. We have left our homelands behind to settle a new country, our country. These soldiers laugh when people like me call this our country. We are no one important, not born to royalty, not willing subjects of his majesty. The only Lord we serve, Lord Hal, is the Lord God. I am an officer recently signed in the Continental Army and it is an officer's duty to follow orders given to me by my commander-in-chief, whom I will respect to my last breath. All of you be prepared to meet death in whatever shape it might appear. I am a soldier under orders and not a spy. You are shedding the blood of an innocent, not a criminal, for whom this kind of punishment is generally given. If I had 10,000 lives, I would lay them all down on behalf of this innocent, bleeding country if it would help restore liberty. What's happening here today is a crime. This is my country and that of my ancestors and their fellow citizens from all over the world. Dutch, German, Irish, Scot, who fought Indians, tilled the soil, built the schools and churches, and hacked a civilization out of a wilderness. Many of us might have come from England, but we're not English subjects anymore. We are Americans, and I'm here because I accepted a mission on behalf of my country to preserve liberty, and liberty is a cause worth fighting for 
and worth dying for. I am so engaged with this cause that I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Although Nathan Hale's last words were never fully recorded, British witnesses present at his hanging, including Captain John Montresor, said he spoke calmly, steadily, and with a passion for his cause. His cause of liberty was a hot subject of his debate classes with his brother at Yale, leaning heavily on the writings of Rousseau and others, who proposed that all laws governing men should rely on the principles of freedom and equality. Jefferson would rely on Rousseau's theories and those of John Locke heavily in writing the Declaration of Independence. The exact delivery of Nathan Hale's last few words was reported in slightly different forms, but the fact that he uttered something closely resembling what we have given here is no longer debated. Mostly important to the times, it was the popularly accepted version of those words, namely, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, that stirred the hearts of patriots to follow. In part one, we will share the stories of Abraham Woodall, the Long Island farmer in East Setauket, who became one of the two key leaders of the Culper Ring and hero of the AMC TV series Turn, along with Caleb Brewster, the Setauket fisherman who was the first to offer his services to Washington, and who became one of Washington's most trusted and skilled informants. And Robert Townsend, the New York City Quaker merchant known as Culper Jr., who provided Washington's chief of intelligence, Benjamin Talmadge, with life-saving intelligence gleaned from his busy Tory coffeehouse. And Anna Nancy Strong Smith, the devout Long Island spy and neighbor of Woodhull's, who, in addition to hanging certain types of laundry outside to signal to Brewster the locations where intelligence could be picked up, who gained valuable intelligence from her Tory relatives during trips to New York City with Abraham Woodhull and James Rivington, the Tory sympathizer who printed the popular Tory newspaper, the Rivington Gazette, and was turned into Washington's greatest spy. And the story of William Alexander, known to his colonial troops as Lord Sterling, who gave up his British citizenship to fight for American freedom and fought in nearly every northern campaign for Washington, including enduring a cold and bitter winter at Valley Forge. And last but not least in this episode, the story of two teenage boys named Mercero, who joined a spy mission for Washington's army in New Jersey, a mission that paid big dividends to Washington's colonial army. In part two, we'll cover the untold stories of James Armistead Lafayette, the African-American slave who became Lafayette's eyes and ears in the camps of both trader Benedict Arnold and Lord Cornwallis, of South Carolina's legendary swamp fox, Francis Marion, who outwitted and outfought Bannister's Tories at every turn, of the fiery redhead Margaret Corbin, who manned her husband's gun position and gave the British hell in New York, of Molly Pitcher, whose courage inspired hundreds of men to keep fighting in the horrendous heat at Monmouth, and dozens of stories mostly relegated these days to rarely read roadside markers and footnotes. As we look back at history, I can say with certainty that today, few people leaving the Banana Republic store at 66 and 3rd Streets, Manhattan, New York, stop to notice the plaque on the outside wall that mentions the spot only a stone's throw away where courageous young Nathan Hale spoke his famous last words, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, before being hung from a tree by his British captors 
and many probably have no idea how and why those words stirred General Washington's heart so profoundly when he heard them. And I'm sure Lady Gaga had no idea that her Rivington Street rebels derived their name from Washington's greatest spy, James Rivington. Or the Beastie Boys, for that matter, when they chose a picture of Manhattan's Rivington Street for the cover of their album, Paul's Boutique. Or the people leaving the Burger King in Passaic, New Jersey, at the intersection of Gregory Avenue and River Drive, who dropped trash near the forlorn historical marker located on a small concrete pad right there near a utility pole in the Burger King parking lot. The sign that just begins to note the incredible accomplishments of a one-time British Lord, William Alexander, better known and loved by his Continental troops as Lord Sterling. Although it says much more, these few words on that marker say it all. American patriot, friend of George Washington. Men and friends like these and the men and women whose sacrifices went largely unsung during the dangerous years of the American Revolution are the stories of whom we tell in parts one and two of the unsung heroes of the American Revolution. In the case of the Culper's firing, their stories differ often from the movie, and we'll be able to give you a very different and accurate account of what happened to them during and after the Revolution in parts one and two here at 1001 Heroes, legends, histories, and mysteries. In September of 1776, with the British in command of Western Long Island and the rebel army trying to defend Manhattan, George Washington had put together an elite group of military commandos under the command of Colonel Thomas Knowlton of Ashford, Connecticut, outfitted them with green berets, and assigned them the name of Knowlton's Rangers. Knowlton had distinguished himself at Bunker Hill, and was quickly becoming one of Washington's most trusted officers. Rangers were assigned the duty of patrolling the Westchester and Manhattan shorelines and other points around Hale Gate. Nathan Hale, at age 20, but showing all the qualities of a born leader, was assigned command of one of the four Ranger companies. Washington knew he had no chance of defending Manhattan against a British landing, which he strongly suspected was to happen but he badly needed information from behind enemy lines. Civilians couldn't be trusted for the most part, so he wanted a military man who would volunteer. He put the word out among his generals and officers that he needed a spy, a job which, in those times, was considered demeaning and dishonest. A lot has changed over the years, as we've come to realize the importance of gathering intelligence. Washington was painfully aware of the need for good intelligence, having been sorely defeated at Brandywine for failing to employ good intelligence in that battle against Howe, who took advantage of the information he received and used a back trail unknown to Washington to flank his troops, who fought bravely, but lost in the end. Young Nathan Hale, unskilled and untrained in the art of gathering intelligence, was recommended by Knowlton and volunteered. Wanting to do something, for the public good, as he described it, and was inserted behind enemy lines two days before the British invaded at Kipps Bay, now East River and 34th Street, Manhattan, taking most of Manhattan on September 14th and 15th, 1776. Howe took residence at the Beekman Estate at 51st and 1st Avenue. Washington, not having the intelligence he so badly needed, was now entrenched behind the bluffs at Harlem Heights, on September 20th, New York City was set on fire and a wild panic ensued, with everyone on the lookout for spies and rebel sympathizers. Hale and Washington had run out of time. None other than Captain John Montresor, aide-de-camp to General Howe, the British engineer who had spent the last hours with Hale, carried the white flag to Washington's headquarters the same day of the hanging. While at Washington's headquarters, Montresor shared his news with the artillery captain, Alexander Hamilton, who soon informed one of Hale's best friends, Captain Hull. Hull went with the delegation assigned to return Washington's answer to Howe, and on this ride, he had his chance to speak with Montresor, who told him of Howe's actions and his last words. When Washington heard of Howe's hanging, he was upset with himself for sending him. And when he heard Hale's last words, no doubt his mind went back to the days when he had rehearsed nearly the same lines from Cato with Sally Fairfax in Act 4, Scene 4, where Cato says, 
How beautiful is death when earned by virtue. Who would not be that youth? What pity is it that we can die but once to serve our country? The death of Nathan Hale, although witnessed by few and spoken of little until later years, served as a wake-up call for Washington, who devoted his every attention to developing a spy network that could help the fledgling democracy shake off the bonds of Britain and become an independent nation. The hanging of young Nathan Hale would plague his conscience for the remainder of his life. The American War for Independence, which lasted eight years, four months, and 15 days, beginning at the Battle of Concord on April 19, 1775, and ending with the final ratification of the Treaty of Paris on September 3, 1783, was a hard-fought, grueling conflict that tore families and communities apart, with many remaining loyal to their British occupiers and others willing to risk all to live free from British rule. Intelligence was desperately needed on both sides, with the advantage going to the British who could afford to buy information, while Washington was constantly asking the fledgling Congress for funding. Many of his agents worked for nothing, knowing the risks. In January of 1777, a little more than three months after Nathan Hale's death, Washington contacted William Dewar of the New York Provincial Congress to provide him with the name of a person who could organize and command a New York City spy ring. Dewar promptly recommended colleague Nathaniel Sackett for the position, and Washington then tapped Hale's friend Benjamin Talmadge to be Sackett's contact with the Continental Army. When Talmadge was promoted to major in April of 1777, his regiment was called from Connecticut to support the Continental Army, and he wasn't able to give the time to Sackett, who was busy developing advancements for the proposed spy ring, all of which he detailed to Washington directly in a letter which arrived the same day Talmadge was promoted. Sackett had also recruited some agents, apparently good ones, whose identities remain unknown to this day, but whose work discovered that the British were building flat-bottom boats to use in a campaign against Philadelphia. But Sackett was soon paid and dismissed, failing to provide New York intelligence, which Washington needed, fast enough. Intel which was being provided without Sackett's help by Colonel Elias Dayton working with John Mercereau on Staten Island. The Mercereau-Dayton ring, nowhere near as elaborate as the Culper ring, has long been considered one of Washington's earliest spy rings. On the 26th of July, 1777, Washington sent a letter to Colonel Elias Dayton, a veteran of the New Jersey militia, whom Washington knew and respected, asking for intelligence on Staten Island and New Jersey, which he needed in advance of his general Lord Stirling's arrival in that area with troops. Lord Stirling's contributions to the revolution have been undersung. He was one of Washington's go-to generals, often in the thick of fighting and always showing incredible courage. At the Battle of Long Island in August of that year, Stirling led the stalwart, well-trained 1st Maryland Regiment, also known as the Maryland Line, in repeated attacks against a superior British Army force under Commander General William Howe at the Old Stone House near Gowanus Creek, and took heavy casualties. The Redcoats had made a wide flanking attack, sweeping to the east through the lightly guarded Jamaica Pass, one of a series of low entrances through the ridge line of hills running east to west through the center of Long Island, catching the Patriot forces on their left side. Outnumbered 25 to 1, his brigade was eventually overwhelmed, and Sterling himself was taken prisoner during the disciplined and measured slow retreat, but not before repelling the British forces long enough to allow the main body of Washington's Continental troops to escape to defensive positions at Brooklyn Heights along the East River shoreline. In other words, Lord Sturley purposely took a beating to allow Washington time to get the bulk of his army out. Later, under the cover of a heaven-sent fog which enveloped the river and the rear guard covering actions of the Marylanders, Washington was able to barge his remaining troops and equipment across back to Manhattan Island and New York Town. Because of his actions at Long Island, one newspaper called Sterling the bravest man in America at that time, and he was praised by both Washington and the British for his bravery and audacity. While Colonel Dayton was busy gathering local intelligence, Washington turned to his friend Joshua Mercereau Sr. on Staten Island for more. And this story by descendant Laurie Mercereau, titled 
Two Teenagers Who Helped Save America, tells the story. The story of two teenagers at the beginning of the Revolutionary War gives us insight into the beginnings of what is today the township of Guilford, New Jersey. The two boys by the names of Joshua and John lived in Staten Island with their father, Joshua Sr. The father was educated at what is now Columbia College and practiced law in New York City. He was also a successful businessman on Staten Island, having a tavern, stagecoaches, and several boats. George Washington and Lafayette were frequent visitors in his home. Early in July 1776, when New York fell to the British, a large amount of Joshua Mercereau's property was destroyed, and he narrowly escaped capture. His brother John turned his horses, which were used by the stagecoach line, into Washington's service. When George Washington was retreating through New Jersey, he asked Mercereau if he could leave his son, John LaGrange, who was about 19 at the time, behind in Staten Island to act as a spy. This was the beginning of the Mercereau spy ring. John did successful espionage for 18 months. Mrs. Smith, in her book, Staten Island, Gateway to New York, mentions that with people like the Mercereaux, George Washington could report to the Continental Congress, I have people constantly on Staten Island who give me daily information on the operations of the enemy. These are brave men. John LaGrange Mercereaux eventually came under suspicion, but escaped and rejoined the American Army. Later, he became assistant deputy commissary of prisoners. He was never able to serve with troops in the field because a defective right arm made it impossible to hold a musket, but for courage, he was unsurpassed in the Revolution. Joshua Jr., now about 14 years old, replaced his brother moving back and forth in a skiff hidden by day in a relative's cellar. When George Washington crossed the Delaware, the British were in pursuit. It was Joshua Jr. and Joshua Sr., who were the principal instruments in preventing the British Army from crossing the Delaware. Joshua Sr. asked if every precaution had been taken and that the materials left behind had been burnt. To be sure, Joshua Sr. and Joshua Jr. asked if they might go back across and search the shore. On the other side of the river, they found below the water's surface two Durham boats, troop carriers, sunk purposely before by the Tories to keep them out of sight so they could use them later. The boys raised the boats and burned them. Thus, when the British under General Howe arrived at the Delaware, they had no means of following Washington. The war was saved for Washington by a 14-year-old patriot. Twenty-five days later, Washington returned and crossed the Delaware. Victory resulted. On August 7, 1778, Washington received a letter from longshoreman Caleb Brewster at Norwalk, Connecticut, with an offer to report on the enemy, to which Washington cautiously agreed and replied with advice. Brewster sent his first report on August 27th, including the condition of British warships after a storm and some battles with French warships at the beginning of the Battle of Rhode Island. Brewster also reported that several regiments of British troops were boarding ships to take them to Newport, Rhode Island. Fans of AMC's Turn will recognize the name Caleb Brewster. He became a key player in the Culpeper Ring who worked between Anna Strong Smith, Abe Woodhull, and Major Talmadge to pass intelligence from Long Island to Major Talmadge's headquarters in Connecticut. In an effort to beef up his spying capabilities, Washington assigned General Charles Scott to replace Sackett and handle Brewster and find additional agents at the same time asking Major Talmadge to assist Scott. But Scott apparently had other duties, finding intelligence work uninteresting, and left most of the work in Talmadge's hands. So Washington started going directly to Talmadge, and Talmadge recommended Abraham Woodall of, of Setauket in Suffolk County, Long Island, as a contact for Brewster. Woodall was a childhood friend of Talmadge and Brewster. Just a few months earlier, Woodall had been taken prisoner by an American ship and charged with illegal trading, of which he was guilty. He was in jail in Connecticut when Talmadge talked Governor John Trumbull into releasing him in his care, and then convinced Washington that he would make a good agent. Washington devised the alias Samuel Culper for Woodhull, remembering his surveying days in Culpeper County, Virginia, and the Culper Ring was born. Talmadge and Scott had opposing ideas of how to utilize their spies with Scott preferring single-action agents who could sneak in and out of enemy lines. A 
tactic that cost them five good agents within a short period. While Talmadge wanted to embed agents within enemy territory, securing lines of communication through which information could be smuggled out. The two clashed until October 29th when Scott resigned and Talmadge became chief of intelligence. Woodhull would go to New York City every few weeks to visit his sister, Mary Underhill, and while there kept busy gathering information on the British supply fleet, which, by the movement of different supplies, painted a pretty good picture of what the British were doing in 1778. He was also providing exact information on the identity of British units and number of troops, as well as the disposition of those troops in New York City, which proved to him a very useful spy for Washington. In the late months of 1778, Woodhull had to return to Setauket to pass messages to and pick messages up from Caleb Brewster, who acted as the go-between between Woodhull and Talmadge. By December of 1778, Talmadge had set up couriers at first Jonas Hawkins and later Austin Rowe, who would carry the messages the 55 miles between New York City and Setauket to pass them to Brewster. Brewster would pick up the messages at one of the six secluded coves near Setauket and with his rotating whaleboat crews take them across the Sound to Talmadge in Connecticut. Talmadge would then take them to Washington's headquarters. In the Brian Kilmeade Dan Yeager book Washington's Secret Six, he names six key agents in the Culper spy ring, beginning with Major Ben Talmadge, then Abraham Woodhull, Caleb Brewster, a mysterious female agent known only today as Agent 355, who they suspected was actually Anna Strong Smith, Robert Townsend, and Austin Rowe. Austin Rowe was the owner of Rowe's Tavern in East Setauket, now a private home, but in those days a successful tavern and inn, one in which Washington stayed during a visit in 1790, no doubt to thank Mr. Rowe for his services. Rowe, as a busy merchant, was a frequent traveler to New York City, often riding by horseback, and he logged a lot of miles between the city and Setauket, delivering messages from Robert Townsend at his Tory coffee house in the city to a drop in Setauket, enough to earn him the title of the Paul Revere of Long Island in later years. His brothers Nathaniel and Philip were also assisting him, a fact uncovered recently in an overlooked letter from a Loyalist soldier. It's kind of neat how those little bits of history keep turning up. We did an urban legends piece a while back telling the story of a man who bought an old painting at a yard sale because he liked the frame, and when he pulled the frame away, out dropped an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. In order to safeguard the identity of his spies, Talmadge utilized a number of protective measures. He gave his informants pseudonyms and invented a numerical substitution system to identify his informants rather than use names. 763 numbers were used, with 711 denoting General Washington, 745 representing England, and 727 for New York. Talmadge and his associates also wrote in invisible ink. The spy ring established a sophisticated method of conveying information to Washington, who was based at New Windsor in New York. All information sent to Washington had to be transported through British-held territory. Austin Rowe rode from Chautauquet, Long Island, to New York City, where he entered Townsend's downtown establishment. There, Rowe placed an order from Talmadge, who signed under his code name, John Bolton. Contained in this message were prearranged code words from Washington to Talmadge, to which Talmadge responded in code. The messages were then hidden in goods that Rowe took back to Chautauquet and hid on a farm belonging to Abraham Woodall, who would later retrieve the messages. Anna Smith Strong, who owned a farm near to Woodhull's barn, would then hang a black petticoat on her clothesline that Caleb Brewster could see in order to signal him to retrieve the documents. Strong indicated which cove Brewster should land at by hanging up between one and six white handkerchiefs to designate the specific cove. Brewster would then deliver the messages to Talmadge. Anna Strong may play a substantial role in the series' turn, but her real-life counterpart's position in the Culper spy ring was much less clear. Known as Nancy, she was born Anna Smith in 1740. Her father was Colonel William Smith, who had served as the clerk of Suffolk County. She married Selah Strong in 1760, and the couple had several children together. Long Island historian Beverly Tyler writes, According to Rivington's Royal Gazette, Selah Strong was captured and confined in the Sugar House in New York for, in quotes, 
serendipitous correspondence with the enemy, end quote. Nancy Strong was able to bring her husband produce from the farm and get him released by appealing to her Tory relatives in New York City. Sheila then fled to Connecticut. This adds one more connection between Nancy Strong and the Culper spy. She could easily have worked both sides of the street, so to speak, in New York City. In 1778, with her husband a refugee in Connecticut, Nancy Strong was living on what was then Seton's Neck in Setauket, where she continued, despite the war, to raise and care for her six children. We do not know if any of the children went to Connecticut with their father. However, Nancy, running a farm and likely nursing both William, three, and Joseph, less than one, needed the assistance of her older children, ages 17, 12, 9, and 7, on the farm. Abraham Woodall, a Setauket farmer and boyhood friend of Benjamin Talmadge, was selected by Talmadge to head up the spying operation. Woodall's sister and her husband, Amos Underhill, ran a boarding house in Manhattan. This gave Woodall the perfect cover to spend time in New York City gathering intelligence. However, Woodall was concerned that his frequent trips to New York would cast suspicion on a simple farmer from Setauket. On a few occasions, Nancy Strong accompanied Abraham Woodall to New York, posing as his wife. It seems it was easier for a man and wife to travel through checkpoints to Manhattan than for a single man. Woodhull wrote, I intend to visit 727, New York, before long, and think by the assistance of a 355, meaning a woman, of my acquaintance, shall be able to outwit them all. The lady in question, Anna Smith Strong, having loyalist relatives in Manhattan, including her brothers, had the opportunity to gather useful information. In his original book on the Culper spies, Morton Pennypacker made a connection between Woodhull and Strong. A clue was found among the papers of the Floyd family, and when this was compared with the Abraham Woodhull account book, it was discovered that the signals were arranged by no less a personage than the wife of Judge Sheila Strong. Anna Smith was her maiden name. On one of the many occasions when Caleb Brewster came across Long Island Sound from Fairfield to Setauket to retrieve spy messages for General Washington, he noted his location. I lay up back of Esquire Strong's yesterday. Thus, by letting the Strong's know where Brewster and his whaleboat crew were located, Nancy Strong could signal Abraham Woodall. Moving to Robert Townsend, a prolific member of the Culper spy ring, Robert was a silent partner of a New York City coffeehouse that was frequented daily by the British occupying forces, a coffeehouse whose owner, James Rivington, by all appearances, was an over-the-top British loyalist, operating a Tory newspaper and print shop, which Townsend wrote articles for, in addition to his work operating the coffeehouse. Townsend was a valuable member of the Culper Spiring because he was embedded in the city at a meeting place where loyalists, British officers, and dock workers would meet and drink, often talking loudly, and he was privy to much of what was going on. It was a favorite hangout for Major Andre as well, and Townsend got to know Andre as well as many of the British officers in the city at that time. Townsend had been brought up in a strictly Quaker family, and that upbringing placed him at odds with the thought of fighting the British forces occupying America, due to a strict Quaker philosophy which called for an adherence to pacifism. In this case, violence was prohibited. There was a rift growing, however, between political Quakers and religious Quakers, which started during the 1750s. Essentially, the latter accused the former of breaking with traditional values, resulting in the re-signing of political Quakers from office and leading to a wave of purification within the Quaker movement. A perfect example was the split between Quaker Ben Franklin and his son, William, who were viciously divided. His son, a magistrate in New Jersey and hardcore loyalist, was jailed in 1776, later eventually released on a prison exchange, and spent the next few years during the Revolution resisting the Patriot cause in every way he could and embarrassing Franklin in any way he could, including hanging a captured American soldier. Not exactly a non-violent stance. Obedient Quakers pledged to embrace non-violence and never to revolt against a legal government. Thus, Quakers emerged as the strongest supporters of British rule. Another factor, and probably a more important one, that led to Townsend joining the fight against British rule was the treatment of his family by British soldiers in Oyster Bay. 
a number of British officers thought that anti-British sentiment had been ingrained into the colonist spirit, and they believed that it should be thrashed out of them because New England had poisoned the whole. This led to numerous incidents of violence and pillage directed at colonists. On November 19, 1778, one such instance drove Townsend to the Patriot cause. Colonel John Graves Simcoe, and you turn viewers will recognize that one, of the Queen's Rangers, and roughly 300 of his men were stationed in Oyster Bay during the winter months. Simcoe took the Townsend home as his headquarters, and he and his men used the home when and however they wanted. Townsend's father Samuel was distraught after his prized apple orchard was torn down by Simcoe's men. Adding to the insult, the Townsends were forced to swear allegiance to the king or go to prison. A final factor was Townsend's relationship with Abraham Woodall. Woodall knew Townsend as a result of both lodging at a boarding house run by Woodall's brother-in-law. Woodall was also a descendant of Oyster Bay's founder, Captain John Underhill, and Townsend may have been directed to the boarding house by Underhill. Woodall as a recruiter, and Townsend as the recruited, knew and trusted each other well enough by June 1779 that Townsend eagerly accepted when Woodall made his pitch to Townsend to join a new spy ring for Washington. Wasting little time to begin spy activities, Townsend sent his first dispatch on June 29, 1779, nine days after Woodhull informed Washington that he had a contact in New York. This first piece of intelligence was designed to look like a letter between two loyalists. In it, Townsend stated that he received information from a Rhode Islander who gathered from British troops that two British divisions are to make excursion into Connecticut, and very soon. One of Townsend's most valuable and memorable discoveries concerned a plot by the British to ruin the American economy by flooding the country with counterfeit dollars. The most crucial part of Townsend's report was that the British had procured several reams of paper made for the last emission struck by Congress. This was terrible news for American leaders. The British had previously been forced to counterfeit money on paper that was similar to the official paper, but now they had the authentic paper. Thus, distinguishing between real and fake money would be virtually impossible. As a result, Congress was forced to recall all its bills in circulation, a major ordeal, but one that saved the war effort by not allowing counterfeit money to flood the market. Townsend also warned his superiors of spies in their midst. At one point, he warned Benjamin Talmadge that Christopher Deutschenik was an agent of New York City Mayor David Matthews. Townsend warned that Matthews was under the direction of Governor William Tryon. Returning to the coffee house on Wall Street for a second, where Townsend worked, let's take a look at the owner, James Rivington, a notoriously staunch loyalist who made his living from both the coffee house and his print shop, which was located either nearby or in the basement below, depending on which account you read, where he printed books, legal forms, art prints, broadsides, and news. That being any news, true or false, which could embarrass his avowed enemies, the stupid and incompetent American colonists, and their buffoon of a leader, George Washington. In a story titled Coffee, Tea, and Conspiracy at breedshill.org, authors D.H.T. Shippey and Michael Burns, and I'm paraphrasing, tell us that his concocted articles, written as if they were fact, made patriot blood boil. Among his stories, the Russian connection, in this case, the Russian Tsar was sending 30,000 troops to crush the rebels. Another, George Washington was a womanizer and had fathered illegitimate children. Another, Washington had died. Then, Benjamin Franklin, another favorite target of jest, had been wounded by an assassin and was soon to die. And so on and so on. His skill in cutting the Patriot cause the ribbons made him a hero of not only the British occupiers, but the New York City elite most of whom were loyalists and who were quite happy to be ruled and occupied by the British, who brought them a lot of business and kept the bars and brothels full and the merchants busy. To further solidify his Tory stance, everyone knew that in 1775, when the first shots of war were fired and bodies started dropping, Rivington's shop was looted and burned by the Sons of Liberty, with some of his presses and typefaces being melted down for ammunition. If there was one guy in New York City who was likely not a patriot, Rivington was the man. Following the destruction of his print shop, he moved his family back to England for their own safety, 
but later returned to New York in 1777, where he opened his businesses near Townsend Shop. While he was away, however, what remained of his presses were staying busy. According to Washington's Secret Six, while Rivington was away, his surviving presses were busy serving the king without him. On June 26, 1776, a counterfeiter named Israel Young testified to having heard from a trusted source that a ship in New York waters, the Duchess of Gordon, had been the site of a counterfeiting workshop. What was more, Young recounted, the work was overseen by none other than New York's colonial governor, William Tryon. Young swore that he had heard from his source that he had also seen Governor Tryon often and that the governor would talk very free with them, that they had on board a number of Rivington's types and one of his printers. The source received a letter which he said was from the governor and also some waterwork money, which he said they counterfeited on board the Duchess, and he himself had seen them printing it off, that they had a chest of it. Whether it was with Rivington's knowledge at the time or not, his name was thus linked with the counterfeiting trade, and he undoubtedly drank free in British circles afterward for having such a reputation. As it turns out, there was much more to James Rivington, printer to the King's Most Excellent Majesty, than met the eye. At some point following his return to America from England at the end of 1777, it seems that his loyalties shifted. It remains unclear whether he was driven by a change of heart toward the American cause, a desire for monetary gain, or simply frustration at the Crown's objections to his printing criticisms of the leadership of General Howe in the autumn of 1778. But what is certain is that Rivington secretly threw in his lot with the Americans and began to work alongside Robert Townsend, gathering information and conveying it outside the city to General Washington's waiting hands. Rivington became Washington's top spy, a secret which wasn't discovered until 1930. The incredible story of what happened to him after the British evacuated New York, as well as the what happened to stories of all the members of the Culper's firing, is told in part two. Rivington's name was the last to appear among the Culper Code monikers, 726, indicating that Townsend had recruited him soon after his own engagement, probably by the late summer of 1779, when the code was developed. The code first lists the spies' names, concluding with Rivington as 726, then seamlessly moves on from personal names to place names, with New York designated as 727. How so cautious and reserved a man as Townsend was able to establish a confidence with an avowedly Tory propagandist is hard to imagine. Once the connection was made, however, Rivington's mischievous nature must have delighted in the irony of his recruitment. This was the same man, after all, who found great amusement in seeing himself hung in effigy and who happily reprinted damning letters about his character from Patriots. Rivington's communications were written on the book cover boards so no one would see them, bound in the covers of books and conveyed to the American camp by agents that had no idea they were delivering intelligence, especially from Rivington. Several years later, William Hooper, a North Carolina lawyer who had signed the Declaration of Independence, wrote to his friend and future Supreme Court Justice James Iredell, It has come out, as there is now no longer any reason to conceal it, that Rivington has been very useful to General Washington by furnishing him with intelligence. The unusual confidence which the British placed in him, owing in a great measure to his liberal abuse of the Americans, gave him ample opportunities to obtain information, which he had bountifully communicated to our friends. The British were being played, and from the least likely of corners, but they remained oblivious to the double dealings in their midst. The parties went on, the coffeehouse debates continued as the officers went about, surrounded by their circles of admirers. The wine and the words flowed freely as they bantered about their plans. The army was in garrison, comfortable, amused, and completely oblivious to the fact that any shopkeeper, newspaper man, or charming lady in their midst was listening, remembering, and plotting. How valuable was Rivington to the cause? Consider this story. According to Coffee, Tea, and Conspiracy, through the coffee house, Rivington managed to acquire the complete codebook for the British Royal Navy forces. This was sent to Washington and to French Admiral de Grasse. When British General Cornwallis found himself trapped at Yorktown in 1781, the British fleet was dispatched to rescue his army, 
and according to some researchers, de Grasse was able to use those codes to fight and handily beat the British at the Naval Battle of the Chesapeake, thus cutting off any chance of Cornwallis' retreat and ensuring Washington's victory at Yorktown. The wind heard round the world that secured American independence once and for all. Townsend wrote what is likely his last report on September 19, 1782. The last packet has indeed brought the clearest and unequivocal proof that the independence of America is unconditionally to be acknowledged, nor will there be any conditions insisted on for those who have joined the King's standard. Sir Guy himself says that he thinks it's not improbable that the next packet may bring orders for an evacuation of New York. A fleet is getting ready to sail for the Bay of Fundy about the 1st of October to transport a large number of refugees to that quarter. Indeed, I never saw such general distress and dissatisfaction in my life as is painted in the countenance of every Tory at New York. The Culper Ring provided valuable information to General Washington, including the fact that the British planned a surprise attack on the newly allied French forces under Lieutenant General Rochambeau at Newport, Rhode Island, before the French could fully recover and set up defenses after their arduous sea journey to America. The Ring learned that Major General William Tryon's raid in Connecticut in July of 1779 was a diversion to induce Washington to divide his forces so that Lieutenant General Sir Henry Clinton could attack them piecemeal. And they discovered that a high-ranking American officer, subsequently shown to be Benedict Arnold, had been plotting with British Major John Andre to surrender the garrison to the British and turn over the vitally important American fort at West Point, New York, on the Hudson River. In part two of Washington Spies, we'll share the stories of James Armistead Lafayette, the enslaved African-American who served the Continental Army under Lafayette as a double agent, reporting the activities of the turncoat Benedict Arnold, as well as Lord Cornwallis, during the run-up to Yorktown, and the very tough Nancy Hart, who, according to legend, disguised herself as a man and spied on British fortifications, and also shot and hung a half-dozen British soldiers who made the mistake of entering her Georgia farmhouse, leaving six uniformed skeletons for history to uncover centuries later and a host of other patriots and stories. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Please join us for comment at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes, or send us a review at Apple iTunes or Stitcher, or send us a tweet at 1001 Podcast. We enjoy hearing from you. Stay tuned for part two of Washington's Unsung Heroes, where you'll hear incredible true stories about dozens of spies that risked everything for the revolution. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>